This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Bishop Fox, the gold standard in software security testing, code reviews, and penetration testing. Visit us at bishopfox.com to learn more about the services we offer and the job openings that we have. All right, welcome back to the Security Conversations podcast. My guest this week, we're at RSA with Rick Holland, uh, CISO and VP of Strategy over at Digital Shadows. So let's start right there. What is Digital Shadows? What do you guys do? What's, what space are you playing in? Sure, sure. It's a good week to be pitching to everything that's going on, right? Sure, um, you've had this conversation. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot. Um, basically, Digital Shadows is looking beyond a company's perimeter for digital risk to their business. So that could be threat actors selling access to their data in dark web markets and forums. Could be spoofed social media profiles that are talking negatively about the company. It could be new infrastructure that's popped up that's vulnerable to some exploit that we're seeing chatter on. Right. Um, and essentially just help the customers operationalize that stuff and try to mitigate those risks. And operationally, you are infiltrating online forums using your own, I don't know, you have uh, your own technology for uh, tracking and, and finding specific data points on. Yeah, it's a mix of technology and then you can't automate all the things so you have to have people collectors as well certain places you have to have interaction to get access to or main access to so it's really a combination of two in a perfect world you use the human collectors to then feed that into where they get access to automated collection because that's how you scale the business right why are companies turning to threat intel it's a really interesting conversation we're I'm sure you've had these conversations this week, especially about all the buzzwords that have been out. You know, threat intel was one of the buzzwords probably, I don't know, four years ago. It still remains um, pretty pretty significant in the market. I mean, I think people are trying to get an advantage against the adversaries and using threat intelligence. For many, it's more the idea of threat intelligence to give them some kind of advantage over the attacker to help build more resilience into their programs. What are they actually buying? They're actually buying visibility on where their client data might be sitting or their customer data might be sitting out there? What, what are, are they buying IOCs from you? Are they buying Yara roles for them to go doing their own hunting? Yeah, yeah. What exactly are you providing? Yeah, so for us, you're getting alerts when we find something that's been leaked out. So that could just be, it could be something that was leaked out accidentally on a website. Nothing to do with threat intelligence, but we just found some of your data exposed. On the threat intelligence side, you're getting a combination of indicators, you're getting context around an adversary. uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, We'll often get extortion letters from our customers. So ransomware site or- Exactly, DDoS extortion, a ransomware. Um, DDoS is one that's come up uh, just in the the past week. And so we'll we'll take a look at that and we'll do a bunch of OSINT um, recon on any of the indicators that are in the email itself the handles of the actors that are involved. We'll also look at our close source stuff and see if there's any bleed over there and then give the customer an assessment. Like we believe there's a high probability that this DDoS extortion will occur. This particular threat actor has clear motivation right. so, and so has capability. Right. Yeah. Trying to give them context. Cause I think one of the struggles, not, I think I see this too, even as the internal CISO hat, right. Is you don't have enough resources. You don't have enough people. So you're looking to, you know, your, your bench of vendors that are giving you service to try to help give you context, to try to help you overcome some of the human challenges that you have on recruiting and retention. What do you mean by context? Uh, so in that... Because that's an, uh, uh, a layered discussion. Oh, yeah, yeah, are absolutely. Doing, are you doing attribution? Um, are you doing specific attribution and some of the nation state type things? You we're not doxing people publicly. I would okay. say that. Um, we will but do... When you, when you say context... 
What sure, sure. Mean? So history of the, go back to a particular actor, right? This is what we know about this actor. These are their capabilities. This is who they've targeted in the past. This is what they're likely to do in the future. So trying to help them build a story because I think if you just have an indicator, I've called them various things over the years. Indicators of exhaustion is one thing that I have, have right. called them. But I've made fun of indicators in various right, ways, right. dating back to Forrester. But an indicator is just a piece of information that, that, that doesn't give you a lot of context. So having a broader story right. around it, making it more relevant to, to the customer is really important, especially people start off with indicators. No matter, typically, you know, in your thread and tell journey, you're going to start off with OSINT feeds. Right. And then maybe, depending on your size, you may have tons of commercial feeds. You may only have one commercial feed. Um, then you might look to aggregate them in a SIM or a threat intelligence platform as you kind of have a journey. And then you want to know more, you know, like who is behind this? Why are they targeting me? What are they likely to do? I mean, you get this from, from your past, right? You know, you know, all that sort of stuff. Although we, we're not, we don't dox people publicly. That's, that's not there, but we will give an assessment to a customer for context to help them make a decision, right? I think ultimately you want to help them make a decision for their business. Is there a specific sweet spot for uh, uh, companies turning the threat until to answer some questions? Is it fintech? Is it... Yeah, it's a, I mean, you start off on the financial side, but they're the, the bleeding edge, leading adopters of all Everything, technology, yeah. right? So I am guarantee every vendor, you know, three or four blocks away from here that's a startup is looking at targeting financial services because right. they'll, they'll have an appetite for that. So, um, so clearly the FS folks have been investing for threat intelligence for many years. I think you've seen retail that's greatly uh, accelerated the maturity of their programs. You're seeing healthcare and healthcare insurance do the same. Um, although I, I think they're a little, they have some challenges. I think and uh, being highly regulated environments um, don't have as much resources. If they're, they may not have as much capital to deploy. But but you are seeing some of the insurance companies step up because of the anthem and all right. you know, the, care now, care first, the was it, three or four years ago. Um, technology companies like out here, of course, um, they're building a lot of their own capabilities uh, internally as well. Um, those are the main ones that, that we see in our customer base, but certainly FS leads the way. But sometimes you think FS means super mature. Like I've done some FS ISAC events and you've had the big Fortune 10 banks and then you have the regional credit union that's got, like I was at one point in my career, the security guy. Right, they were even right. lucky to have one girl or guy to be on their team. And so there's like a, there's some great disparity between the top level of the FSI SAC and, 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 and folks that are much more smaller and regional. Do you, uh, are you partnering with any third parties around uh, data sets or are you, what is your, what is your big selling point? So they, they the Kaspersky's or the traditional endpoint mm -hmm. vendors of the world have a marketing message around we have visibility because we have these endpoints sitting on right, right, right. Collect, collecting data. How do you compete with that? Yeah, so for us, that endpoint piece. So, so us would be breadth of collection, um, but because we're outside the perimeter, I mean, we don't have an endpoint agent, you know, we're a SaaS service running in the cloud. Uh, so we have various types of collection capability, uh, could be generic web crawlers, could be a specific crawl. As an example, like Alphabet, our Alphabet crawler was specifically built for that piece of software, if you will, right? Um, Hansa, as another example, had a different crawler that was out there. So there'll be different variations of crawlers that we'll use to go. Of course, you also have to get access to these environments. So you may have to have an anonymization network, right, to try to protect yourself. Um, 
and there's different levels of OPSEC that you would have there depending on what you're trying to accomplish. Um, then we're plugging into a bunch of APIs as well, so Twitter as an example. Right. Um, have I been pwned for some of the, 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 password. Some of the password reset stuff? Shodan is another one that we'll plug into uh, as well. Um, and then you have the humans in the mix, so it's kind of all of those areas. And for us, you know, instead of just focusing on one silo, you know, we're looking across from social, from dark, from your web pages, and trying to give you context across all of those. You also wear the CISO hat there at Digital Shadows. That means what? It's is interesting. It just, it's just, is it uh, internal protection of the infrastructure? Is it a combination of that plus what? Yeah, for what, me... What do, you, what do you do as a CISO there? Sure. And why would anyone want to be a CISO? After you've answered this question. <laughs> so I've been a CISO now for... <laughs> I've been a CISO for about four months. And then when people will see me, and many of it's happened this week, they'll see me and they'll be like, congratulations? I don't know if this is a good thing or not. Um, for me, it's a good thing. Uh, obviously, I have an opportunity to you know, take a... This is a first-time CISO role for us. Mm-hmm. And I really feel like if you're a security vendor, you need to be focused on security. And I think... Having a dedicated function, and maybe it's not a CISO, but dedicated function for security uh, is important. Uh, for me in the role, you know, I still do a mix of the external things, like kind of think of Digital Shadows Analyst, where I'm doing competitive intelligence and helping with marketing and messaging and product strategy, that sort of thing. On the internal front, I'm at the stage now of the program where I'm trying to get as much visibility into the environment as I can. Right. Um, I use my tool to give me visibility on the outside, um, but what's going on inside our environment? Um, one thing for me that I've enjoyed because it's been seven years, eight years since I was a practitioner, uh, was I never had worked in AWS before. Oh. So, you know, you talk about in our field where it feels good to learn new things. So for me, I, I covered AWS a little bit at Forrester, but I didn't have the kind of operational piece. So what I've enjoyed is starting to, I mean, the beginning of this journey, start to learn about um, Amazon. Um, and it's nice to do new things because, you know, it's you don't... It's such a fun, interesting place, too. You talk to Rich Mogul and those guys oh, about... Uh, I think Rich, Rich is my, my go-to guy oh, uh, for that stuff. In fact, I did a blog last week or the week before on talks for RSA, and he had a talk, although I can't remember what day it was. Right. But my recommendation was, if you're interested in cloud, you got to go see, see Rich's oh, talk. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you spent how long at Forrester? Four and a half years. Four and a half years as an analyst at Forrester focused on technology and... Focused primarily on security? My focus areas were uh, security, yes, but specifically I created the threat intelligence practice for us or research, mm-hmm. did incident response, vulnerability management, so a lot of the kind of threaty right, uh, right. defender type of uh, activities. Has your, has your mindset, how has it changed mm-hmm. coming out of the analyst community in, onto the vendor side? Is it what you expected was there a big disconnect between what you found out being on the vendor side versus being an analyst? The worlds. I think I have more empathy for vendors than I. Yeah, me too. <laughs> it's really it's really interesting coming out of journalism and going on to the vendor side and seeing what reality is. It makes you so much more empathetic and so less likely to just be throwing barbs at people. And I mean, I, I mean, I would, you know, I don't think I was too big of a jerk as an analyst, but I certainly would get I on some... Jack, I was an asshole. As a <laughs> I would definitely throw some stuff out on Twitter. Sometimes I wouldn't call out a particular vendor. It would be something like, I just had the worst briefing of my life. Right. The vendor would know I was talking about them, but I didn't call them out. But, you know, words matter, um, and sometimes people's jobs matter. 
Um, and so, and now I have a, you know, I was a, a channel SE at Acubon when Acubon existed, but I had never been on the, the vendor right. vendor side like I am now. So one of the reasons I wanted to leave Forrester was kind of new muscles, you know, learning new things. And I wanted to learn the back of the houses. So I wanted to learn the back of the house on the vendor side. And again, empathy and, and appreciation. It's really difficult in this market. There's so many vendors, there's so many messages out there. Um, it's really exciting. Um, you know, I don't know if I'd ever go back to the analyst world, but if I did, I'd have, you know, this, new, uh, I would, new yeah, approach I'd have a whole new approach. And, and I think where I've learned a lot, um, on, on the analyst front, what I would apply to it is more on the, the business strategy and the go to market. A lot of the analyst research is heavily focused on the tech, mm -hmm. um, but there's so many more important things. Well, maybe not more important. It's not the right word uh, important things. You could have the greatest tech ever, but if you don't have a good channel, to go to market with, if you don't have good marketing, if you don't have good public relations, there's all the, the complexity of being successful in the vendor world is, is great. And I think what I've learned in these last two years is a lot there. In fact, when I talk to analysts, I'm like, these are some of the things that I've learned. And man, I would do a Forrester way very differently now Absolutely. than what with, I did with, then. With, with this context that you mm -hmm. have now, yeah. where does this lack of empathy come from? Because especially around RSA time, I, you see it on Twitter. Oh my God, I hate going to RSA, all these crappy vendors doing all these crappy things. Meanwhile, if I walk the floor at RSA, I'm really impressed by people trying to solve hard problems and trying to make their way. Uh, you know, of course, they're a crappy company. Sure. They're scrappy. Is it crappy marketing and sales operations or where does this lack of empathy come from? Or why are we as a security industry slash security community so quick to be dismissive and arrogant about vendors when there are really, really smart people trying to solve complex problems and just trying to navigate their way through this. And, and it bums me out. It does bum me Everybody out. I used to be that guy. Rash. Everyone loves the vendor Why? rash. I almost feel like it's the same thing. Like we like to victim blame. You have an intrusion come out and uh, you, you're talking about a CISO's degree in music music yeah that, that bothered me i mean of all the things that you could have complained about in that, that intrusion the and the pr side of it so far down this plus if you look at especially in threat intelligence like for us you want a very diverse background i don't want a bunch of just ex-army intel people like right, me right. i don't want a bunch of defenders that have been doing cybersecurity blue team work right. for their whole career you or want to come and bring you, new creative you interesting have, yeah. perspectives right so so I don't know why, and maybe it's just Twitter. I know you and I are both active on Twitter. Twitter seems to be where there's more of the, the, the bashing yeah. going on than, than other places. But I also think, you know, if I put my CISO hat on, man, my inbox has gotten so much inside sales, meet at RSA, and I really wish I had, I often joke, I was like, man, stopping, you know, phishing attempts is all great and whatever, but if you really want me to like my email security, I wanted to stop inside sales spam um, yeah. because you're just getting 15 emails a day. Take this meeting at RSA. It's, it's, it's overwhelming. So I think that I think people kind of get beat down by some right. of that, um, and which will contribute to it. Tell me about your background. You mentioned the army. How did you, how did you sure. blend your way into our crazy industry? So, um, Sarbanes-Oxley, and I'll, I'll get to it, but a lot of times people bash, GDPR Sox, is a good right. one now, yeah. right? But that's Sox new, is, that's the new it's Sox, the new right? socks. So, um, so I, I grew up in Dallas or Texas, and I joined the Army straight out of high school. I did well in college. I mean, in high school, but I wasn't ready to go to go to college. It would have been a waste of money. So I joined the Army, did Intel, um, and was getting exposed to technology. Um, 
a lot of cool stuff. And so I got out of, uh, of the army and I did tech support back in the day. Like, you know, you're old, like back in my day, you had to rip and replace dial up networking right. and you had modems to dial in. And, Were you, you always know. the techie guy as a kid? Uh, yeah, yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. And big, big sci-fi geek and right. you know, all that sort of stuff. Uh, big gamer growing up. Um, but some of the tech that I got exposed to in the military was particularly cool, and just kind of kept that passion going. And I kind of worked my way from tech support to desktop support. So I was, you know, going and wiping machines, right, Windows right, right. machines, stuff like that. I think people recover from. Yeah, exactly. And then socks happened, and I worked at a home builder in Dallas at the time, and Deloitte was our external was doing our internal audit function, right. and they needed somebody to to help with IT audit. And I was like, well. This sounds way better than wiping and, and building yeah. new partitions on hard drives. So Sarbanes-Oxley, I worked with Deloitte and learned a lot there. And then I was like, well, security and IT audit's pretty similar. And I kind of created the security role for me. So I was well, a one, one, one guy security shop in, a, in this home builder. And uh, then I became a sales engineer after that at Acuvant. And then through relationships that I'd had, I had the opportunity to go to Forrester. Which at the time, man, I, did, I didn't. I had like a five-month hiring process. Was that was an tough. intimidating move for you? Because I had the opportunity to go into the analyst community as well. I had a couple of analyst firms recruiting me towards the end of my journalism career, and it was so intimidating. I, I don't. To me, it was. I didn't want to do it at the time. I didn't think I was. I, John Kindervog, who's uh, now at Palo Alto Networks, but was at Forrester and he's kind of coined the zero trust stuff. I got that, mm-hmm. that movement running. John is who recruited me there. And I remember telling John, I was like, I don't think I'm the right guy for this. I didn't really actually know a lot about analyst firms when I worked in, I was also in higher education for a little while. Uh, and the home builder, we never had access to Forrester or Gardner. So I'd never, didn't, I never interacted with them. Yeah. So I didn't know a lot about it. So I was pretty much not really interested, but I went ahead and went through the process because I didn't, to be honest, I didn't think I could do it. Um, I didn't think I had the right background, the right skill set. We went through a four or five month hiring process. And by the end of it, you had to write a piece of research, present it. It wasn't quite a murder board, but it was right. pretty significant questioning from a large group of analysts that were all... Just you know, picking it apart and mm-hmm. helping you to yeah. make it better. Right? Yeah, very, very critical in, in, in a good way, but also trying to throw you off and see how do you right. respond to interactions. Right? By the time it was done, I remember clearly, it was in a quarter at Acumont. I was supporting seven sales reps. I did my pitch. I told John Kindervog, I was like, dude, I don't care if I get this job or not. I am just so glad to be done with the process. Fortunately, um, you know, I got that opportunity and I got to join them. And it was a really good experience. There are a lot of uh, startups, a lot of smaller companies, a lot of even sometimes medium-sized companies struggling to uh, understand whether they need the analyst. Uh, relations piece of the marketing puzzle or the sales mm-hmm. puzzle. Uh, coming from someone who's been on, now on both sides, uh, are you using the analyst community now in your current job? Yeah, we are. We are. And I help so out help, with help, help Help those folks understand what the value is and what the potential pitfalls are. Well, you, uh, you know, and let's be. Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Not, I hope I'm not putting you on the spot. No, 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 no. To I, be blunt, this is viewed generally as a pay-for-play scam. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, one, one thing I, I say is you've got to have relationships with the analysts that work for you. Um, there's different ways to go about having that relationship. Um, social media is one way that I think you can engage with analysts 
blog about analysts, quote their 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 blogs, their research, their tweets, and, and maybe not have a subscription to any of the analyst firms that are out there. When you're a when you're a startup and you don't have a lot of capital and you have a marketing budget that's probably not that not that large, you know, it's not inexpensive to to to, to get an analyst firm. So, you know, typically you'll see the marketing group owns it. Um, they'll start with one firm for a while. Um, you'll get to a point where... You what know, are you getting? What are you getting? What specific, if you can help me understand sure, this, sure. or help the listeners understand specifically what do you get from engaging with subscriptions with an analyst firm? So I'd say, I'd say there's two, two approaches. One, if I put my CISO hat on mm-hmm. it for like the practitioners in the right, audience, right. right? There, where I think it's helpful, especially if you're smaller, like I'm a 160-person company. As CISO, I don't have a lot of time to do a lot of research on the latest and greatest widget. I had a hard enough time keeping track of that as an analyst at Forrester, and you'd think I was in the catbird seat. So I think getting 30-minute uh, inquiries with these analysts and say, hey, look, I'm rolling out um, managed detection and response. What's the vendor landscape look like there? Who do you get positive feedback from your customers on? Because um, Forrester and Gartner are speaking to Fortune 500 companies doing hundreds of inquiries a month or a quarter. So. For me, and this is how I use them now on CISO Rick, is give me a short list. Now, I was always amazed, Ryan, when I was at Forrester, I would have people that would buy based on the leader of a wave. Really? Without doing any evaluation. Now, it, was, it wasn't the majority of people out there, but I was the just... the wave, just so people understand. Sure. The wave is the equivalent of the... The magic quadrant. The magic quadrant. The magic quadrant. Right. Um, Equivalent, and then IDC. Oh, my IDC friends will hit hit me for not knowing <laughs> what theirs is called, but they have something similar um, there. So for me, I think using it as a tool in your decision, you know, purchase process is good. Having some validation um, of your strategy uh, of what you're doing, that sort of thing. So I I found that to be uh, useful. But knowing that the analysts are wrong, they're not always going to be right. They're just a data point right, right. That, that's out there. You know, right now there's so how many... How much of it is guessing? Um, Educated guessing, obviously. But how much of, 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 of an analyst perspective or an analyst report on something that's coming down the pike is just his own informed speculation of where this will end up? There's a fair amount How much of, of it did they get wrong? There's a, there's a fair amount of it um, that's speculation. Um, there's also a lot of kind of, you're talking to people all the time. And so you're getting perspective from some of the biggest companies in the world. And that's also informing your research as well. Um, one of the things that I always thought was a challenge with the Forrester and Gartner models is when it comes to the evaluations, you're not setting up a lab. You're not testing things out. Um, you know, NSS Labs, they just released something yesterday, actually. And, you know, NSS Labs is looking to fill or has been looking to try to fill the we're actually going to test this out. So I think everyone's always trying to have a better methodology for those big evaluation pieces. Um, but as a, as a tech, technical person, as a former sales engineer, you know, I wanted to you know, run and see the efficacy of these things. So vendors will use third parties for some of that work. But that, that, that was awesome. I personally struggled with on, on the waves that I was involved in. And I did two and a half I got to hand off my third one to someone when I left right, to join right. Digital Shadows. It was a really great feeling. Um, but definitely, you have to have a relationship with the analysts. And the, you know, the more money that is spent with an analyst firm, the more interaction you will have with an analyst. So, and there's real value there. I, I, I think so. From on the vendor side, now this was kind of, I think there's value in helping you make decisions, 
validate your strategy on the CISO practitioner side. On the vendor side, a lot of times people think it's all about waves, magic quadrants, but really it's these inquiries. You know, as I said, the analysts are taking hundreds of calls a month, a quarter, and someone will be like, again, go back to the MDR. Oh, okay, I'm looking at MDR. You know, what do you know about Red Canary? And what do you know about Expel IO? Or maybe I didn't even know that those were players in the space and the analyst is giving them to you. So from the vendors, I did a, I did a talk um, at Mach, Mach 37, the accelerator, cyber accelerator that's in Northern Virginia a couple years ago. And it was something like, you know, I did the whole for fun and profit. But it was something like engaging with industry analysts for for fun and profit, something along those lines. And I, I was talking about some of these concepts in there is that oftentimes people forget on the vendors the power of the inquiry because you're going to touch a whole lot more people in a much smaller time frame on that versus a wave that may happen once every two years. In some cases, they are even could be longer. Right. So like for the vendors out there, you know, don't minimize the power of the inquiries and them making recommendations to your prospects. Right. Did you get a chance to walk around RSC at all and look at uh, some of the, not trends, but interesting things happening? Well, I, I've, I've only briefly, um, I haven't spent a lot of time on the show floor. I'm, show floor is, I guess the question, let me rephrase the question. Sure. Is there anything unique, new, exciting you're seeing in security? Is it, uh, I, I'll throw some examples. The sure. things that I liked is this new approach to cyber deception. Uh, there's some vendors around containerization that are doing really interesting things. Give me a, sen- a sense of put your analyst back, hat back on. What are what are some technologies or services that you're seeing that holds promise? Well, I think the deception one is an interesting one because it's kind of, I was very, uh, I still think a lot of organizations may not be mature enough for deception if you look at their programs, but that's evolved quite a bit. It seems like it's becoming a feature in broader security yeah, that's what I'm curious to know. Yeah. Is it a product or is it a feature within a... I think it's a feature. Right. Um, I thought it should have been a feature um, back back in the day when I covered covered the space mm-hmm. as well. Um, but I like it much more as a feature than a standalone mm-hmm. product. But you got to have a lot more um, maturity uh, that's out there. Um, I Well, I can tell you something that I thought we were kind of missing, and that's third-party risk. Um, there's a ton of, there's a, in fact, there's a fair amount of, uh, what do you mean by third party risk? J- that's, a, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, we've got, actually cyber GRX was in the innovation sandbox, mm-hmm. uh, on Monday. Um, and they're kind of seeking to be kind of a platform where you can have these third party risk assessments there and say, Oh, I want to get a risk assessment on digital shadows. Oh, we already have it. And they kind of do that for me. One of the biggest pain points I have on the CISO side is both doing due diligence on the third parties we use and then responding to the inbound request to us for, you know, for, for that. And it's, you know, I still feel like it's checkbox security. Um, one area where I'll use our, our platform for is because we're collecting this data on Ynet. I'll say, what do we have in our, our credential dump on X vendor that we're looking at using? It's not the greatest evaluation, right. but it, it gives, you it gives me something. Right. It's better than a, a, right. than a dumb check that's pretty useless. Or how many docs are we finding related to this? Are they leaking a lot of docs out there? Um, so I think third-party risk is an area where you've got companies like CyberGX are kind of interesting trying to solve problems. I'm not sure if anyone's really solved the problem very well right now because you want to get beyond the checkbox. You also want to get into more of a continuous type of uh, assessment. I'm going to sign a two-year contract with the vendor, and I just did my third-party risk here. 
I need to make sure that I follow up. Maybe it's only one more time. Right. That's great. Two assessments in two years' time is not that great. So I, I still think, and, and I talked to lots of CISOs. We were talking about CISO conversations earlier today as well. And that one is a big pain point for my, my, my peers as well as myself. I'd like to see more there. Um, I haven't, I, one of the things I want to do is try to go around and look at startups that are looking at like serverless um, containers. Like I'm very interested. Um, and for me, again, it's an area where it's personal growth. I'm learning yeah. about that. Uh, but I think there's, there's a lot there. Um, and, you know, we're a DevOps shop. So I've been working a lot with the, the DevOps team there and learning that stuff that, uh, in that area. And I think there's still so much more upside. There's so many organizations that still don't um, or they got a lot of technical debt. They're encumbered by all of this. Light. I mean, still people using mainframes. So it's going to take a long time. But I'm very interested in personally learning a little bit more about the, the landscape on the serverless side uh, for container security as well. And just having security built in. Right. You know, no bolt-on, just built in. I want to go back to the earlier part of this conversation. Are you seeing a lot of interest um, from political operatives, political parties, interesting people for threat intel services as uh, just locking down my uh, my own personal risk post DMC hack, post Podesta, post? No, I, I, I haven't. Not in... I have seen this from... Uh, high net worth individuals right. where they're interested in their digital footprint and protecting them, family network. that sort of thing. Um, now there, there's probably conversations going on like on the, on the, the agency side where they're looking at stuff. And certainly we work with some of the agencies, but I, I, I want to see this groundswell where, you know, the, the, the average consumer is much more concerned about their privacy and things like that. But I really don't. I see it like high net with individuals for sure. We'll see a fair amount of that. And you'll see that coming up from the insurance ranks, the financial services companies, also looking at ways that they can provide that service to their customers. Um, I want to see a much bigger groundswell in privacy and security um, than I do, though. All right, enough about this security stuff. Um, you are a barbecue enthusiast. <laughs> good stuff. I've been waiting for this. You are meddling with learning about meat smoking. What uh, have you learned uh, that you didn't know about good barbecue that you would say surprised you? There's so many things. So I've been probably barbecuing for two and a half years, Mm -hmm. something like that. So still very much... As as a hobbyist? Uh Uh-huh. Although, as a hungry man. (laughs) uh, As as a hobbyist. I like to cook for people. I had the Digital Shadows team to my house in the fall for like 30 people is the most I've ever cooked for. I was so nervous. I was running around like crazy and I was like, and you need the food. You got all these people there and they they have these expectations and you want it to come out and not be cold. You want it to taste good. Um, But I I don't know. Um, Rubs. Rubs. I really like to mess around with rubs because you want sweet, you want sour. Yeah. I'd like to maybe be able to make my own and then sell them as a side right, like right, side right. thing, but I'm not anywhere there. Like, yeah, I was trying. I was talking to somebody the other day, like ranking the spices. Like, I think you gotta go salt number right. one. It's super important. The I do a lot of dry brining. I don't wet brine mm-hmm. um, there. So I, I mean, I learned a lot about salt. You know, the mm-hmm. things that, that were surprising there, but also how much work is involved. Uh, I, I told you before. I made a brisket two weeks ago, and between trimming it and cooking it getting through the stall on it, 
then I made burnt ends the next day. I mean, this is like a 19, 20 hour labor of love. Um, and, and I kind of like that. It's, you, I know, my wife looks at me like, why? I enjoy it. And I like it when people like what you make. Of course, Absolutely. You know, it's like I, I put all this effort into something and you actually like it. It's not a platitude. I really like I don't, that. I don't think people understand the thrill of someone looking at your smoke ring on a oh. slice of brisket and, and commenting on how perfect it is. And, and they take a bite. The right moisture and, and the rub is perfect. That, that, that thrill is something people don't quite get. And, and, and I, find, I, I found out recently that meat smoking is pretty popular in our security industry or security community. There's a, a bunch of guys already uh, meddling with... Well, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even had it if it wasn't for you because... I have the same cooker that you have, pit barrel cooker, and you and Chris Hoff. Um, um, we, we tweet that stuff out, and I was like, "Man, I, I like to eat barbecue. Maybe I should start making my own barbecue." So, yeah, you, you're in my uh, in, in my uh, influence path for actually even in doing that now. What's the barbecue scene like in Texas, in Dallas versus say Austin, which is synonymous with good barbecue? Dallas is. I mean, Texas has got a lot of great barbecue um, from Houston to San Antonio to. Hill Country in Austin and mm-hmm. in, in, in Dallas. Um, I've eaten at places in Austin and Dallas. They're all they're all good. I mean, I, I got to represent Dallas. But Austin's got great barbecue, and whenever we go down there, my wife knows I'm going to go it's pick out a, spot, a, a a barbecue place there. I mean, Texas barbecue is all about the brisket, and you mm-hmm. also have had a lot of German um, immigrants back in the day so sausage and either right, beef right, sausage right. or pork sausage is, is big there also hill country down by austin ways they don't you just have butcher block paper and you eat with your hands right, right so some of those traditionalist places won't even give you that and no sauce you know right. we're about the rub in texas and not about the sauce and you can go to another part of the country where it's all about the sauce oh yeah yeah now i'm an equal opportunity barbecue yeah, guy yeah, i'm not i don't hate on casey i don't yeah. hate, you know i'll now i don't know there was Twitter blew up recently because someplace in Brooklyn took a picture of their barbecue and I don't know if you saw that. It didn't look that appetizing. I've had good barbecue in Brooklyn as well. So I am definitely not a purist. Um, I, it's actually a really nice community on Twitter. You tweet out, I just did this. I was like, hey, I'm going to be in Charlotte next month. What are the right. recommendations? And there's so many of us um, that geek out on barbecue that right. you'll get recommendations you'll, you'll everywhere. Get where, you'll get a lot of where not to go or where to go. Oh, yeah. Which region you need to go to to get the... The, the and you may make right a new there. friend. Mm-hmm. You, someone that you know that's on Twitter. Part of, yeah. Hey, let's meet up. Take me to barbecue, and that's that I really like as well. So when you talk about Twitter being negative, sometimes the barbecue <laughs> cyber cyber cue. That um, <laughs> I take that back. Strike that from Twitter cue. <laughs> um, the the community within our field within the barbecues really really yeah, it's nice. The same one. as a jujitsu and uh, oh, yeah. of, of, of our community and, and, and people sharing the same hobbies and, and, and how that lends to real good empathy and friendships. Oh yeah. Uh, over the years it's been interesting. It still it still bumps me out how what what Twitter is being used for. But I think I found a way to segment it and, and, and learn how to ignore this part and not not to be triggered or bothered by You can't. Uh, It'll bring you down. Yeah. It'll bring you down. All right, Rick, thank you very much. Really appreciate the stop in. Uh, hope we can get to do it again sometime. Yeah, thanks, Ryan. It's great to be with you. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Bishop Fox, the gold standard in software security testing, code reviews, and penetration testing. Visit us at bishopfox.com to learn more about the services we offer.